exactly that innovative the the algorithms that tiktok have uh, you know, I, I think it's it's innovative in the sense that it, it does do a very effective job of, of stringing interesting content together for a viewer, which mm. increases the amount of time that they're viewing on the app. But at the end of the day, I think this is much more of a political statement, basically saying, look, you know, China has strong tech, too. It's clear that a foreign country or foreign companies want it. Why should we give it up when it's so difficult now for us to actually invest in some of the foreign businesses we'd like to invest in? So if it isn't sold and Donald Trump goes through with his threats to ban TikTok in the U.S., what, what happens to it? Does the app just disappear? Is that the end for TikTok in the U.S.? Um, I, I think it, it may potentially kind of wither away and die. I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to see if, if it doesn't sell what Trump ends up doing. If it mm. just, just means that the app gets removed from app stores in the U.S., I think cur current users will still be able to use it for a while, but they won't be getting updates. They won't be getting any new features, and it would be very difficult for a new user to actually download the app. And so mm. so just because of that, I think you, you'd see its pace of growth just sort of go away and, and the app would slowly die. Okay, Ben, sadly we've run out of time, but thank you very much. That's Ben Cavender, Principal at the China Market Research Group up in Shanghai. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's have a final look at the markets for this morning. First of all, in Australia, the ASX 200 is up about 0.6%. Uh, the Nikkei 225 is up three quarters of a percent in Japan. Uh, looks like the Hang Seng is going to open down about 50 points. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil at $39.82 a barrel. Gold is at $1,941 an ounce. That's it for Money Talk this morning. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for Back Chat with Hugh Chiverton and Mike Rouse in just a moment. The weather forecast for today, sunny intervals and a few showers. The maximum temperature will be about 32 degrees and the outlook is for sunny intervals and a few showers in the next couple of days. More showers towards the weekend. Out of the observatory, it's 27 degrees right now and it's 93% relative humidity. The time's 8.32. Here's Samantha Butler with the half-hour news. A temporary easing of the high temperatures along the Pacific seaboard of the United States is helping efforts to find people missing in the region's devastating wildfires. All five of the world's most air-polluted cities are currently on the U.S. west coast. Here's the BBC's Nomi Iqbal. Thousands of people who have fled their homes are in emergency shelter where volunteers have been providing food. Thick smoke has turned the skies in Oregon and California dark, hampering rescue efforts. The world's largest plane has flown into California, carrying extra fire trucks to help. President Trump will be arriving there on Monday. The state has never seen fires on this scale before. Officials have called it the impact of climate change, but Mr Trump says it's poor forest management. The Israeli government has announced a three-week nationwide lockdown to contain a surge in coronavirus infections. The move comes into effect on Friday, hours before the start of the Jewish New Year, making Israel the first country to reimpose such a measure on a national scale. People will be banned from moving more than 500 metres from their homes. Schools and places of worship will be closed and all but essential shops shut. The Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has asked his finance minister to prepare a package to help businesses hurt by the Lockdown. I know those measures will exact a heavy price on us all. This is not the kind of holiday we're used to, and we certainly won't be able to celebrate with our extended families. And there will also be those affected by the lockdown, such as business owners and others. 
The Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis says a permanent migrant reception centre will be built on the island of Lesbos to replace the current overcrowded refugee camp. Moria was destroyed by a fire last week which left more than 12,000 people without shelter or sanitation. Some residents say a new camp is too much of a burden for their small island. The migrants, like this man from Afghanistan, want the chance to be resettled elsewhere. We want help all country, all country Europe. We will help. We not stay there. There is person. There is make one new camp. All people coming to person, not not come. There person. We not coming outside. There is not have bedroom. There is not have toilet. There is not have food. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chewitt and your co-host today is Mike Rouse. Mike, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. Today, latest developments in COVID-19 in Hong Kong and also in the US. We're going to be discussing how the pandemic is affecting different aspects of our lives, including the economy and our mental well-being, what sort of public health measures are appropriate now and how things are working out in America. Let us know your thoughts, your questions and comments. Our Facebook page is Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Our email address, backchat at rthk.hk. And our telephone number is 233-88266. We look forward to hearing from you. 233-88266 is the number. Joining us for our first part of the programme, and various uh, different guests will be joining us later, we have now Professor Benjamin Cowley, uh, Division Head and Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong, and also from the University of Hong Kong, lecturer in the Faculty of Business and Economics, uh, Vera Yoon. Once again, our email address, backchat at rthk.hk. Uh, a few thoughts uh, coming in over the weekend on uh, different aspects. First of all, Derek says the COVID-19 situation in both Hong Kong and the US does seem to be improving for the moment. Hong Kong has gone from a daily high of 149 new cases to 19 yesterday. The US went from over 20, uh, sorry, from over 70,000 new cases a day to about half that now. Even with all the troubles of the protests and the national security law, I would still rather be in Hong Kong than most places. At least no one here is arguing about the politics of wearing a mask. It comes uh, from uh, Derek... Mike, you want to contribute on that? No, I'm I'm saving my powder. Okay, uh, and. Um Herman says, uh, in April of this year, over 30 groups, including MSF and the Public Health Associations of Australia and New Zealand and dozens of experts on health, law and trade, such as Joseph Stiglitz, sent an open letter uh, addressed to 37 countries, uh, including Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Norway, the United Kingdom, United States and the EU, to voluntarily opt into a mechanism in the WTO rules to enable greater flexibility in the import of drugs, vaccines or diagnostic tests manufactured in another country. They noted that it's totally irrational for any country, even a rich one, to keep its own hands tied to meet the COVID-19 needs of its population by voluntarily shutting itself off from patented ingredients, components and essential medical products uh, uh, and supplies. And because of global supply trains, countries may need access to active pharmaceutical ingredients and other essential medical uh, components uh, or diagnostic tests. Sorry, yet the current policies of these 37 countries decrease the potential market for drugs 
drugs, vaccines, medical devices or diagnostic tests made in another country, raising costs because manufacturers cannot benefit from economies of scale or restricting availability if manufacturers forego production altogether because of unfavourable economics. Many of these 37 countries that are all too quick to preach about human rights are not only ignoring the plight of their own people suffering from COVID-19 and greater economic hardship, but also fail to consider the human rights of their less wealthy neighbours. Of course, if we want more proof of the hypocrisy, consider that Australia's government has been actively monitoring Facebook posts and recently arrested a pregnant woman for a social media post, allegedly encouraging people to attend a protest against COVID-19 restrictions. If it quacks like a dictatorship, acts like a dictatorship, dot, dot, dot. That comes uh, from uh, Herman. And uh, Leslie Ann? Uh, says uh, these qu- these questions are to be addressed to uh, Professor Sophia Chan, but she doesn't do interviews like that, I'm afraid. So I'll throw them out there anyway, and maybe maybe uh, Benjamin Cowling could address them uh, or what he thinks would be appropriate answers. Uh, Leslie Ann asks first: How many positive cases have been detected in person over the two-week quarantine period after testing negative on arrival, and with how many days? I'm wondering if the 14-day quarantine period could be safely shortened. And second, I'm still harping on about pool clubs. As all, as all other open sports facilities, ranging from gyms to tennis courts, have changing facilities that are used by the general public. So what makes pool facilities uh, any different? Uh, good questions. Thank you very much indeed. Professor Cowling, good morning to you. Thanks for, for, for joining us. Um, yeah, w- w- how do you think we stand now? Um, oh, we spoke to you a week ago. Uh, what's the latest development, would you say? Oh, we've done well. Case numbers have been coming steadily down over the past month. We were heading for a day of zero cases uh, at some point this month. Now I'm a little bit worried because the number went up again yesterday and some of the measures have been relaxed already and I think people are relaxing as well. I'm a little bit nervous now that we might not get down to zero. We might see a little bit of a rebound, but I'm not sure. Uh, Good morning, Ben. Um, This is Mike Rouse. I I think your point about the determination of the public is... A fair one. I think there's getting a bit of restriction fatigue, isn't there? Of course. There's a lot of fatigue in in complying with the various regulations and restrictions. And I think um, what we need to do now is to look back at which of the restrictions and, and regulations have been the most important and which have been less important. And then we can focus on the ones with the greatest value. You know, maybe there'll be some disruptive ones which are really, really useful. And we need to do those again the next time round. Maybe there'll be some other measures. Perhaps in that list would be closing beaches, where there's not that much value in doing it, and it's quite disruptive to to some people at least. And I think many people would add swimming pools to that list. Sure. Um, I'm I'm sure you would have seen the interview with the Swedish uh, scientist who's been leading that government's efforts, where they've, in fact... N- not shut down anything in the oh, Financial no, Times. Of the... So this is Anders Tegner, the, the head yes. of their equivalent of SDHP. They, they have done some restrictions. Initially, they talked about herd immunity, but then when the numbers of cases got bigger and bigger, they, they changed course a little bit. And they did have some social distancing measures in place, and the people in Sweden were, were very, very compliant as well. So the government didn't need to do as much. But you're right, they, they have... Uh, got to today without having lockdowns, without having so much uh, impact of socialism measures compared to, to other parts of the world. That's true. And it seemed to be a philosophical thing, that they were looking 
at the whole uh, effect on on the people of uh, not just the not just the virus. They were looking at mental health and uh, people staying away from other vaccinations and things like this, so that they were yeah. sort of taking a holistic That's view. That's right. But also the, the economic impact of, of social distancing measures is, is really important to, to think about. We know that um, all the measures that have been applied in Hong Kong in the past six months have had an enormous economic impact, but they've been used with the aim of reducing mortality. You know, it, it, it's a cost of the economy, but it's considered justified. But the, the point I was making earlier is we need to figure out which of the, the costly measures are really necessary because maybe some mm. of them are, are not so important and maybe if there's a fourth wave we could we could not use some measures and just choose to, to use the measures which are really, really important. I mean, I, I will mention in New York they had more than 20,000 deaths in their first wave in March and April. And that could have been us uh, if we hadn't done what we did, if we hadn't been better prepared, if we'd, you know, if, if we'd been caught unawares and unable to respond, 20,000 deaths is a lot of deaths. What, what do you think then we've learnt about what are the most effective measures? What works here? So in, in March to April and again in, Ju in July to August, we've seen very clearly that the numbers of cases, the trajectory completely changes from going up to going down once the government implements the work-from-home order for civil servants and private businesses follow along, so they also encourage their staff to work from home. And also, at the same time, that the measures in restaurants to reduce crowding have also uh, seemed to have had an effect. So I would say those two social distancing measures have been important. And I don't think it's the two-person limit in restaurants. I think it's the concept of reducing the number of people in restaurants together all at the same time that helps because we know there has been transmission in restaurants and, of course, bars and leisure facilities. Is it realistic so, to ever get down to zero? Yeah, of course. We got down to zero in April and May. Uh, I think we could get down to zero again now, but the problem will be when we relax, we'll be vulnerable to, to, to having a fourth wave again. Uh, I think it's, it's just uh, something we have to live with now, that numbers of cases are going to be lower sometimes and higher at other times. And uh, until we, we get the vaccine, maybe the middle of next year, we're going to have periods of time where we need to do social distancing. And you think that the working from home and the uh, restrictions on, on restaurants are more significant than uh, tightening up the borders? So the borders is a different issue. Once we've got transmission of COVID in Hong Kong and there's people infecting other people locally, then whether or not we have a few cases coming in from elsewhere in the world doesn't make that much difference. When we had 100-something cases a day in July, it didn't matter if there was one or two coming from somewhere else in the world because it's just drops in the ocean of, of local infections. But when we get down to zero, the border closures are going to be really, really important and the border restrictions, sorry, to stop or to delay the fourth wave because every opportunity that we allow the virus to get in is an opportunity that the fourth wave might start. Well, do you have any insight into that question that uh, Leslie-Anne uh, asked about the, the quarantine period? Are, is there any indication that it could be safely shortened? Well, some places in the world have looked at shortening it to seven days. So my understanding is that at arrival, there's quite a number of people test positive. Yeah. And then of those who go into the quarantine who are initially negative, uh, there, there are some who are picked up 
during the quarantine period, often within the first seven days, not so often in the second seven days. So in other parts of the world, they've looked at a quarantine period of seven days with a test at the end. And if it's negative, then let the person go. And that's accepting there's a small, small risk that they might still have been infected with a long incubation period. But if they're from a low-risk country, um, then it is probably safe enough. Is, is there also some indication now that, that perhaps yeah, that perhaps the the viral load determines uh, a lot about the uh, about the uh, the effect on individuals and the possibility of transmission uh, and so on? That this is kind of a it's a gradated thing that uh, it's not just a kind of an off on thing. Um, this disease um, uh, and it, as I say, a lot depends on on how badly you have it. Yeah, that's right. But we can't measure that perfectly. When we do a swab or we, we get a saliva sample or whatever, we can measure the amount of virus in the sample. But that's not necessarily the same as the amount of virus in a person's lung. It will be correlated, but not the same. So we, we know that people with high levels of virus in their body will tend to have a worse illness and maybe be more likely to transmit onwards. But we can't measure that perfectly with the tools we have. Um, you know, we, we can get an approximation of it from the viral loads in, the, in those samples. Also joining us today is Vera Yoon, Assistant Lecturer at the Faculty of Business and Economics in the University of Hong Kong. Good morning, Ms Yoon. Good morning. How are we doing uh, the economic impact of COVID-19? It seems pretty hard just about everywhere. Yeah, um, we have not done pretty um, well in the first half of the year. Like um, The Census and Statistics Department has published a professional figure for quarter two of this year. So nearly all um, the different sectors of service industry experience um, fall in um, the business we see, um, except Korea, which um, have seen a um, 30% growth from the last uh, uh, from the last year. If we are talking about the second quarter. And also financing that um, excludes banking, that is asset management and financial markets. But other than that, um, some sectors actually did like pretty uh, badly. Like um, accommodation service has dropped for like 70% if you compare it last year in the first half of this year. So um, it depends on the industry, but um, basically many of the factor, uh, sectors are affected. Of course, and tourism is down by, what, 99%? Yeah. Um, Basically, they're not really, like, tourists um, traveling in Hong Kong. But we have um, people who have a short stay in Hong Kong rather than, like, tourists who would spend more within um, a few days. But we seem to be stuck in a sort of vice here, pressure for the government to spend more is very, very substantial. Um, but at the same time, a lot of establishments are not going to be paying much tax. Oh, I'm thinking restaurants and airlines. They, they want to be receiving money instead of paying it back into the government kitty. So fiscally, we're going to have a really tough time. Yes, actually, it, um, it is the same with all the governments in the world. Like, the government has... Um, pretty generous um, rescue money for the people, but it doesn't seem to um, get any well soon for our economies to rebound, and especially um, Hong Kong, 
um, even though we have a um, lower number of cases now, but Hong Kong is a small economy that like highly integrates into the global economy. Right. And we think that, um, you know, in, even in France, they, their case number has just, you know, risen back to more than 10,000. And in developing countries, not getting any better because they basically are not doing much for that. And the developing countries, they always, you know, export cases to, um, you know, regions that has already passed um, the peak. And then, so this is what um, the other guy says, you know, another wave will come in winter perhaps because uh, whenever uh, it seems to get better, the government would like to relax the measures to revive the economy, to allow more tourists to come. It's planning to um, allow business travelers to get permitted uh, to, you know, stay in Hong Kong and travel without, you know, the quarantine and mm. things, things like that. And whatever it it, it relaxed, um, it increased the risk, and then it's coming back, and then there's stricter measures. So, um, it, yeah, there's, we have to come for a few rounds until we find solutions to this. Conventionally, uh, you know, problems in the economy uh, are manifested in, in the price of property uh, and, in, and in the stock exchange. But it doesn't seem like the stock exchange or property prices uh, have shifted very much. Uh, why is that? Oh, it's really, yeah, it's really interesting uh, phenomenon. Um, for real estate, I think it has dropped by a little bit um, and the trend may continue or, you know, it may just level up and stay at that point. Well, that's because um, I think in this global economy, um, there is no need to really, you know, get all your money out from one place mm-hmm. to another because in other places the return is not that high anyway. And I think maybe it's because um, the quantitative easing um, of the U.S. in earlier this year, it makes credit becomes much cheaper. Right. And of course, asset prices increase because there's basically no interest if you put you know, the deposit in the bank. I think that is a strong um, um, factor. Yes. And also for you know, stock market, uh, it, it really um, is influenced by a lot of, um, you know, market news, you know, people having, um, you know, uh, you know they, they have incentives to wanted to uh, uh, earn from the market and, and speculate on the market. And also uh, the election of the U.S. is coming and all these factors has, has not... Um, I think has detached the fundamental, um, the economic uh, factor uh, from uh, the economy to, you know, the stock market right. and the private property. So asset prices are being maintained or, or boosted um, by huge government spending everywhere, but government spending like drunken sailors uh, is not sustainable. Sooner or later, people are going to have questions about the value of money, aren't they? Well, um, the economists has uh, has stories on this that you know the government like uh, they would be in trouble in you know borrowing money to fulfill the duties as a safety net or social insurance when in um, during this pandemic and bad times and if it prolongs, there does need to be you know some sort of solution to this. But I think governments are now like trying to resolve the problem, you know, in front of them rather than trying to deal with it long-term because uh, nobody 
knows what to do in the future, and it will be um, yeah, stretching the ability to pay for that kind of um, I think support or subsidy. So I think that spending helps you know prolong the impact of economic down uh, prolong and you know delay the impact of economic downturn. But now it's getting um, you know hopeless. Like some. Um, enterprises, they actually think that they would not join the next round of subsidy in Hong Kong because they want to fire some people. Like, it's no longer sustainable. And the problem is for investors, if they do not see it's getting any better, they will withhold the money and wait for, you know, signs that it, it eventually will get, will get um, you know, some return um, from the market. So if they hold it for a year, that means there won't be any investment in the market for a year, and then other businesses are closing down, um, trying to cut laws, and you know, and yeah. So we don't think it will. I mean, the economic impact will last um, until you know at least 2021. Okay, uh, some uh, emails now with with questions. Some for uh, uh, Ben Cowling. Paul Zimmerman says, "Is it a feasible strategy to lift quarantine requirements and open borders by building capacity to take samples of every person every time they cross our boundary or border, together with a stay in touch requirement, so that people whose test is found to be positive can be found and their contacts traced for the period they moved around? This would not eliminate all risk, but would contain it while significantly improving the uh, economy." Uh, Press Cowling, is that feasible? I think I've heard some countries looking to do that, but only for business travellers from low-risk locations, and probably not with a completely free itinerary, but with a restricted itinerary, maybe just coming for business meetings and promise not to go out to to, to bars and restaurants and and so on. I think it's a reasonable idea. Uh, Certainly with a test that's negative on arrival from a low-risk country, there'd be a fairly low chance that such a person would actually have COVID. Um, so, I, yeah, I think it's something we should look at. OK. Uh, this is from uh, D, uh, who says, So, Hong Kong is now doing somewhat better on the COVID front. Can we get rid of some of the security theatre that was adopted in the early days before the true characteristics of this virus were known? I have in mind all of the temperature taking everywhere. <laughs> of what earthly use is all this costly folder roll when we know that the virus is easily and frequently transmitted by people who are asymptomatic and with the population with a demonstrably very low COVID prevalence? Ben Cowley? Uh, I think temperature checks uh, are low cost and they are still useful because we know that people uh, are most contagious. So the, the, the people who are most contagious are the people with relatively more symptoms and that could include a fever. So, of course, now we all know everywhere's got temperature checks. If we had a fever, we'd, we'd be likely to stay at home. But that doesn't mean we can... You know, the temperature checks are not useful. They're there as a precautionary measure and, and I think given that they're low cost, I think it's okay to keep those. Okay. Uh, Paul says, uh, since the elderly are most at risk of catching uh, COVID-19, then why has the government not dropped the transport subsidy which they currently enjoy? I know it sounds harsh, but by returning bus and MTR fares back to the full amount for the elderly, it will discourage them from taking unnecessary journeys and therefore reduce their potential exposure to the virus. Let's face it, it's the compassionate thing to do. That comes from Paul. Any comment on that as a measure? Uh, no comment from me. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, Kenny 
uh, Kenny's not happy that you're on again, I'm afraid, <laughs> Professor Cowling. Uh, he does end by saying uh, he will predictably dampen our morning by warning us that we will have a fourth and fifth wave. Would you like to oblige? I'm, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I hope that we won't have a fourth wave and a fifth wave, but in my opinion, it, we will at some point. Um, um, I, I'm looking forward to a period of time now where we can relax a bit, hopefully three months, four months, even into 2021. Uh, I'm crossing my fingers for that. Mm. Uh, okay, and uh, 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 Colin also says, is it not time for quarantine rules to be reviewed? Is 14 days too long? How many cases occur during quarantine uh, after uh, having a negative test on arrival? Uh, how many travellers coming through the land border that have business exemption certificates? Daily figures. Still cannot understand why swimming pools are closed. The changing room argument is the same for any sport. That comes uh, from uh, Colin. Oh, quick word, uh, Benjamin County. Uh, bars. There's speculation that bars may open at the at the end of this week. Uh, is that a move you think would, you'd support? Uh, I, in my opinion, that's risky. So I talked earlier about the restaurant measures. I would put closure of bars as another really important measure in Hong Kong. And a really uh, unfortunate scenario I can imagine is an outbreak in a bar discovered next week because the bars are open, lots and lots of people go there and there's an unrecognised case who goes along and we have another big outbreak like we did in March with, with bars in uh, Wang Chai and TST. Mm. So I, I think it might be a little bit soon but I understand there's a lot of pressure to reopen the bars because of uh, the, the business implications and so on. But uh, in my opinion it's too early. Okay. And, and restaurants you can fix 50% of the overall capacity, but much harder to do in bars, I think. OK, well, Professor Cowling, right. Professor Cowling right. many thanks for joining us today. Always very, very welcome. Uh, division Head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the School of Public Health at University of Hong Kong. Thank you very much indeed. Also from Hong Kong U, uh, Vera Yun, who's a lecturer in the Faculty of Business and uh, Economics. Uh, Paul Yip, oh, also from Hong Kong U, is going to be joining us to talk about uh, his uh, latest uh, suicide survey, what it says about uh, young people in particular in Hong Kong. We'll also be catching up on developments in the US after the news at nine. Join us. There will be sunny intervals and few showers. Today, 28 degrees at the moment. Humidity is at 88%. Deputies are both in a critical condition after a gunman shot them through their patrol car window. Footage of the incident has been widely circulated on social media. Mr Trump's opponent in November's election, Joe Biden, described the attack as cold-blooded and called for the per perpetrators to be punished. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Back chat on a Monday morning with Mike Rouse and me, Hugh Chiverton. We're talking about aspects of uh, COVID uh, and uh, the public health situation. We're talking about also the economic impact. We're going to be talking uh, for the next 15 minutes or so about the mental health aspects. Uh, and later we're going to be uh, looking at the situation uh, in the United States as ever. Uh, if you want to comment, please uh, join in by uh, emailing backchat at rthk.hk uh, or comment on our Facebook page, backchat and rthk radio 3, or you can just uh, give us a call. Our number is 233 uh, We're joined now by Paul Yip, Director of the Centre for Suicide Research and Prevention and Associate Dean of the Faculty of Sciences at the uh, Social Sciences at the University of uh, Hong Kong. Uh, just some uh, emails before we get uh, to uh, Paul Yip. Um, uh, on separatists, uh, Andrew Kay says, so the people caught in the boat were just going to Taiwan for a holiday, question mark, question mark. Another great opportunity for our politicians to grovel for some headlines. 
And uh, Matthew says, the virus again and why virus in the US? The hot topic right now is the 12 Hong Kong people held in the mainland and deprived of due process, while our Hong Kong government pragmatically invokes the two countries, two systems interpretation of our political relationship with the mainland to claim there is nothing they can do to help our citizens. With regard to the voluntarily universal virus testing program, it is clear from the perspective of an authoritarian government that even a voluntary test cannot be voluntary with reports of people being coerced by employers and others to participate and there's a link to a story in the apple daily in my district the dab district councillor was rewarding participants with free face masks uh, it is uh, also both confusing and amusing to hear supporters of the mass testing program argue that the number of participants and handful of asymptomatic cases identified make it a great success but at the same time saying it will not be repeated or continued. Instead, they say the focus will be on targeting uh, testing, on targeted testing of high-risk groups only, which is what experts like Professor Cowling said should have been the focus from the start. That comes uh, from Matthew. Uh, Paul Yip, uh, good morning to you. Um, thank, thanks, thanks for joining us. Um, uh, l let's talk first, maybe, before we kind of talk about the, the, the current situation, about, about uh, what you learnt about... Uh, Last year, uh, the um, suicide rate in, in, in 2019, um, I, I think this is perhaps for some um, slightly surprising um, conclusions from that, especially about, about the mental health and uh, how young people uh, were feeling uh, last year. Can you explain? Well, yes, I think in our... Um Based on the corner records, I think it showed that I think the 2019 we have a slight increase in suicide rate, but it is mainly among the older adults rather than the young people. Yes, I think last year it is a challenging time, not only for young people, I think for the whole population as well. But I think for the for young people, I think uh, what we have seen, I think last year there you can see there's a lot of community efforts I mean, to put in, I think to the school, I think to many uh, sectors, I think to helping these young people, I think who are distressed. So, and also uh, for the young people, I think yes, some of them, they are distressed, uh, yes, but not necessarily that they are going to kill themselves. I think some of them, they actually they build up this resilience, um, they, they build up this bondage, I think, among their own groups. So I think when we're looking at the suicide rate itself, I think what we have seen, it is not an increase, but actually it has uh, been, it, 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 it was smaller than uh, 2018. And in fact, for, young, for many young people, did it actually provide uh, a positive uh, experience. There was this, there was a sense of hope. There was a sense of community. There was a sense of uh, fighting together. Yes, I think to a certain extent we will see that. I uh, mean, they, they build up some sort of resilience. There's some sort of community support. But at the same time, I think their mental health under stress. It is uh, it is true. I think there are no conflicts between the young people with the families, and also there's a lot of polarization. I think within the community as well mental health but I think um, on the whole I think for the young people I think some of for some of them I think they said they they found the hope and then the, I mean the drive I mean to live on to continue I think to fight for what they believe it is right now. is there a danger then looking looking forward instead of looking back that the sense of purpose diminishes as the steam seems to go out of the uh, uh, 
reform drive and unemployment is obviously going to become more serious. Well, uh, that, that is very true, too. I think when we're looking at the data from 2014, when we have the Occupy Central, after uh, I think the whole thing's I think gone away, I think it has uh, created a lot of the vacuum, I think, among the young people. I think it seems that they are going nowhere. No? So I think it is very important now, after the social movement now, after the enactment of the national security law now, yes, what are we going to do with our young people? And also, and, and it is true that I think the employment situation is not going to look good. And I think the unemployment rate among our young people, I think it is, seems to going up. So I think it is really important. It's really, it's really important. I think we actually prepare ourselves and then provide, I think, the support, I think, to our young people. We can see companies now giving notice that they're not going to accept the government's handout in the next uh, batch because they want to get on and fire people. Well, that, 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 that is the worst thing that they should do. Now, I think our young people, I think, should be given a chance. I think now, I think what happened, I think uh, there's, there's a lot of talking about some of the companies they do not want to employ. I think they graduated from last year, which is also not right. I mean, I mean, I always believe that when you give the young people a chance, I think they will come back with a lot of surprise. And what we can see among our young people, they are also a very heterogeneous group. I mean, there are some very political dismotivated, but some of them, they are not. I think they just want to get on with their life. And, and, and I think for the government and also for the business sectors, and, and I think if we can come up with more um, job um, opportunities and give them more exposures, I think, to work, then such, such that they can get back to the to get back to the normal life as soon as possible. What have been the effects? I, I don't know, maybe it's too early to have the kind of figures, but do you have any sense of what has been the impact of of working from home, studying from home, spending a lot more time, uh, you know, there rather than out and, and about and socialising and, and so on? Well, what's happening because of that? Well, I think it is, it is a double edge. I think what we have seen, some part of the population, they actually, they make use of these opportunities. I think they have more time, I think, to spend with their with their children and the children they spend more time with their parents and such that they can build up a, a, I mean, their relationship has been improved. But at the same time, in our data, it suggests that I think there are a number of people because of the quarantine, because of this isolation, it actually, the people, they do not go out to talk to anyone, it has increased by two times, I mean, from 11%, I think, to 26% now. So that is our concern, because some of our young people, I mean, uh, they are not good at communication to the people already, but because of this isolation, because of this quarantine, they make them even more withdraw from the community. So they are these people, actually, who need help. So I think, uh, and, and they do not good in getting so-called the traditional services, this face-to-face. And as a matter of fact, I think during this COVID-19, there's a lot of traditional services, the youth centers and all other activities, I think, has been disrupted. I think our, our, our 
sporting ground has been suspended, and this actually has caused a lot of disruption, I think, of the normal life of the young people and of the whole community as well. So I think it is very, very, very important. Yes, we have to do the quarantine, but at the same time, provide them something alternative way, I think, such that they can make up, I think, the so-called the deficiency, I think, or the loss of opportunity, I think, to talk to someone else. Different home circumstances may, must have a big bearing here. Uh, if someone's living in quite a large property where someone can go off to their own room and read a book or go on the computer by themselves, that's one situation. But if you're all crammed together in a subdivided unit, there's nowhere to hide. You're kind of forced to interact maybe more than you want to. Well, you are very right, too. I mean, this is where there's domestic violences, there's more more conflicts, I think, has occurred. And we have seen that. I mean, now we are fighting for the Wi-Fi, fighting for use of the computer. Because I think normally these young people, they will have a choice. They will go to the library, they go to the study room, they go to the park. But now everything is closed. So I think it's very important now. I think if... Even the school, I would say that if without violating or without increasing the risk of the uh, infecting others or the, the, the spread of epidemic, we should allow more space, I think create more room, I think for young people, especially for those people who live in a very deprived living condition now. Uh, I've got to say my experience is, is uh, that a lot of people in Hong Kong are very depressed at the moment by, by, by a combination of factors, by the politics as, as well as, uh, as COVID-19. And I met people uh, in shops, who uh, shopkeepers who would just like burst into tears and people who are, as I say, very, very depressed, fundamentally depressed about the, about the future of, of Hong Kong. What can we do about that? How can we change that? I think uh, it is a, it's a difficult time. It's not only Hong Kong experience the situation. I think all over the world, the global economic outlook is not very good. So I think I think what the government I think has been doing. I think yes, I think they are trying to spend more money. I think uh, to keep the employment. But there's also uh, kind of the political future of Hong Kong. People are talking about leaving. You know, everybody's talking about getting the DNO passports and anything like that. They don't see a long term prospect for Hong Kong, a lot of people? Yes, I think uh, because of the national security law enactment, yes, there are a lot of people that talk about leaving, but when you're leaving, then you have some older people that have been left behind. Yes, I don't, uh, we, I'm not trying to say, I think our future is very rosy, but I think what we have to do is just do whatever we could. I've been trying to at least, I think, maintain our own well-being and if possible, I think, to help those people who are less unfortunate than yourself. And I think if the government, I do hope that I think they should be more carefully, I think, in trying to listen to the Hong Kong people. I mean, now the employment is, is a real issue. I think the concern about the security law is a real issue. I think we just need the government need to be more empathetic, I mean, to the feeling of the Hong Kong people, you know. And also, but I do hope the business sector you know, can help in, I mean, to try to uh, make the um, unemployment rate to keep it down because having a job in a, such a difficult time is very important. I mean, give them the, not only give them the money to buy food on the table, but at the same time, and then to keep them the self-esteem, you know. So I think if the business sector is not coming out to help now, then I think, uh, I do hope 
how would you cheer people up? How would you offer them <laughs> some? I mean, we can share some good story. Now, I still think Don't that say the, the Greater Bay Area, because I, I'm not sure that that works. <laughs> well, the Good Bay Area doesn't go down very well to our young people. But, I mean, I'm sure there's, there's still many good stories in our community. Now, I mean, I mean, the radio show. I mean, I mean, if you can get somebody, I mean, how they help each other. Like, even we heard about the wonderful story about the COVID-19, when the people being uh, uh, kept in the ward, I mean, the, the nurses, I mean, they give them the faith the FaceTime and, su- and such that the elderly can connect with the younger oh. people. I mean, these are the good story. Now, I think we do need more good story. Now, per- I mean, per- perhaps the resignation of a few unpopular ministers would help. <laughs> well, join the club. <laughs> okay, well, uh, Paul, yep, many thanks for joining us this morning, Director of the no Centre for uh, Suicide Research, Social Scientist at the University of Hong Kong, Associate Dean of the Faculty there. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us once again. Uh, a couple of uh, comments. Uh, Mr Pink in an email says, I, together with my friends and family, took advantage of the government's decision to extend the period for free COVID tests and had our test uh, last Thursday. Uh, even though we didn't have an appointment, the whole process was fast, efficient and painless with the results all negative sent via M- SMS uh, within 48 hours. So well done to the government, uh, says uh, Mr Pink. And Magnus says, read the relative importance of various measures. Please discuss indoor versus outdoor factors, i.e. Chinese and US studies showing one in uh, 7,500 and one in 1,000 cases contracted outdoors versus indoors. Second, looking at Hong Kong U transmission rate R, it can be seen that for this third wave, the transmission rate peaked around June the 26th at around 4.5 and then turned down very sharply to just over 2 before the first batch of restrictions issued the July 10th, i.e. way ahead of any government actions. The implication is clear. The public are, in fact, very good at managing this when properly informed. Uh, It's then much more open to debate whether the subsequently imposed restrictions were necessary or even helpful. Uh, if at all. The transmission rate had already fallen below uh, 1 on July the 26th, while the government was still adding highly dubious restrictions as late as July the 28th. In short, the transmission rate data cannot be used to support an argument justifying the restrictions. Coincidence often is confused with causation. As well as avoiding the repeated failure at the borders, obviously surely focus should be on continued enhanced testing and then fully informing the public as soon as possible in any change in uptick in danger level, e.g. traffic light system queuing of R number uh, stroke suspected local new local cases. The government might be surprised. Treat the population like adults and very likely almost no restrictions would ever be required. That comes uh, from Magnus. Thanks very much. Backchat at rthk.hk. Uh, we're joined finally today by uh, uh, Eric Ding, an epidemiologist, senior fellow at the Federation of uh, American uh, Scientists. Dr. Ding, uh, uh, Professor Ding, uh, good morning. Thanks for joining us once again. Good to talk to you. Um, uh, how are things going in the US? So you seem to be over a peak. Uh, uh, what actually is, is the standing at the moment?
uh, vaccines, and now we're also still having Trump giving mass rallies with thousands and thousands of people in close quarters without any distancing, without any masks, and and he's actually mocking his opponent, uh, Biden, uh, for his social distancing. It's just, it's still a social war just as much as uh, it's a public health war. There seem to be, good, uh, good morning, or your evening, I suppose. Um, there seems to be a fundamental split here with the president saying we've turned the corner and Dr. Fauci saying, no, we haven't. No, no, we really haven't. Because, yes, the cases are down, but our testing, the U.S. is testing daily, the testing volume is at the lowest in over two months. So, and our positivity has not dropped precipitously. It's still uh, way above the 5% we really need to be. So I, I think it's, it's, it's a lull in the testing and therefore the cases. And again, it's no, you know, we are reopening schools, we're reopening college campuses. We've had dozens of colleges close again. We've had the entire Michigan State University uh, quarantine their entire campus population. It's, just, it's still a runaway wildfire. And, and yet we still have big sturges motorcycle rallies uh, with a couple hundred thousand people spreading across the country and the president having these events without any mask wearing among his, his followers. It's, it's still an incredibly uncontained epidemic. There still seems to, or seems to be now developing quite a lot of controversy over vaccinations. There are already people saying that even if, when there is a vaccine they won't, take, they won't t accept it and uh, there's also an impact on other vaccination drives like uh, measles and the traditional ones which haven't been proven to be very effective. Some people are dropping out of those. Yeah, well, what's, what's happening is, first of all, Trump is trying to rush an approval. So um, basically get an emergency approval before his election day on November 3rd. And that is scaring the living daylights out of everyone. Even the FDA, there's multiple calls on the FDA commissioner to resign. And it is just incredibly dangerous because, look, phase three, we need to wait for a trial to finish, the, the phase three trial. And the phase three trial will take time. It, it follows a lot of people for a long time, so we know it's not only it's safe, but also works well. And they might, when Trump is trying to stop the trial early, or at least get an early peek at the data, and and try to force through an approval before it's done, and that is scaring the living daylights, even out of our vaccine advocates and leading vaccine scientists. And because, again, you may win the battle, but you'll lose the war if people lose trust in vaccine whenever the real, all the major vaccines are coming out. And right now, you know, the AstraZeneca defaulting your one of the trials out of you know, abundance of caution is also frustrating many other uh, researchers, but also political folks, which are trying to weaponize this all around. The vaccine the story has been weaponized, and it is incredibly dangerous because you should not mix science with an election uh, that's trying to push an uh, election success story before uh, the science is ready.
Okay, so there is also this controversy over uh, Trump's attitude, especially in the sort of early days, uh, with those revelations in the book. You know, and he was saying, "Well, I didn't want people to panic. I was knowingly playing it down because I didn't want people to panic." Uh, I, I know you're a Democrat, uh, <laughs> uh, Eric Ding, but but you know, is is there a logic to that? Um, how do you feel about that? You don't want people to go crazy, do you? saying that there's a difference between concern and panic. Absolutely. And I don't think it's helped, and there's been several references to this, to these very large rallies where everyone's sitting close together and no one's wearing a mask. That kind of action speaks louder than words. So saying in one day, yeah, yeah, wearing a mask is a good idea, and then organising things where people who a handful of people wear a mask then are ostracized that it's that difference in in action yeah, and reaction it's incredibly dangerous uh, there was actually a new york times reporter who actually covered the rally and took pictures and and was reporting that basically his attendees were not wearing masks and immediately the reporter was removed expelled from uh, the convention hall by by his trump handlers and again that's part of this authoritarian streak where, you know, he, he says one thing, but he does something else. And anyone who questions how dare you endanger the public by, by encouraging people to not wear masks are immediately silenced and removed. And this is where, this is how the U.S. has ended up in this terrible, terrible cesspool. And again, we have not rounded the curve. Our, our epidemic is still at a volume much larger than almost the entire world, um, save for a few countries. And I don't see us flattening it anytime soon because of this social, cultural war that he's and the media, built up. And he's the media were saying they're not going to cover his rallies up close now. They're going to stick a camera at the back that's going to record things for everyone, but they're not going to have a mass of reporters in the room because the reporters feel they're at risk. Yeah, it's terribly... This is how democracy slowly dies. Democracy dies in darkness, as they say. And uh, whenever you silence and attack and ostracize and expel reporters, this is 
this is how this is the the, the road to hell is paid with small small things like this and this is why it's incredibly frustrating and right now the road to the end of the pandemic is not this road that we're on what about the let's go back to the science and, and the vaccines how is what's the progress like it seems to be a little stop and start from a distance you know how, how, how are we getting on finding a cure well i think there's many vaccine trials there's about eight uh some eight different vaccine groups there in phase uh, three there's phase three just requires much larger like the early phase trials were you know a couple handful dozen versus a couple hundred um the oxford one was a little larger at one thousand but the, the phase three trials we're talking about is tens of thousands the moderna one for example is thirty thousand people and uh, they're supposed to be followed for two years. But we will get some early results once we have enough people who get sick, unfortunately, and then to see the difference of did the vaccine lower the efficacy. The key thing is we need at minimum, minimum, a vaccine that's 50% efficacious. And if one-third of those people don't take it, the efficacy gets uh, cut by a third. So we need a minimum uh, and. We need a precision around that. We need to know that, you know, any adverse events are not just coin flip by chance, but actual a natural pattern. And if we don't know that for sure, we have to follow them until a couple more months. And rushing it by October, there's no actual trial that will actually finish. They're trying to force an early look, but there's no actual trial that will be sufficiently well, be able to, it's like on looking on a magnifying glass to look with the precision and the confidence that we need to know until at least the end of this year. And so anything before then is a political rush job, and I think that will actually hurt the vaccine hesitancy and make us lose the war or make us lose a much, much longer war. Okay, a couple, couple of comments to, to finish off. TC on, on Facebook says, a philosophical question for the last little while has been the following. If COVID uh, infections don't go down and we can, I think he means can't, find a vaccine, are we going to live in a standstill uh, endlessly? Uh, and um, John says, referring to our earlier guest, Paul Yip, to explain how he would implement or achieve his utopian uh, ideas and John uh, says in Sai Kung uh, has a story from RTHK about uh, the DAB research on supermarkets says even the DAB have discovered the obviously flawed policy to force supermarkets to give discounts in exchange for money let's face it a 10 year old could predict that outcome that comes from John in Sai Kung. Eric Ding thank you very much indeed for, for joining us today epidemiologist and a senior fellow at the Federation of uh, American Scientists and to all our guests today and Mike many thanks to you. It's the end of the world let's cheer up <laughs> the weather forecast Sunny intervals, that's good, and a few showers. Temperatures up to about 32 degrees. The, the outlook, sunny intervals, and a few showers in the next couple of days. More showers towards the weekend. 28 degrees, the latest readings, and the relative humidity is now at 87%. Any person who provides a trust or company service business in Hong Kong must apply to the company's registry for a license. Those operating without a license will be liable to a fine and imprisonment upon conviction. Members of the public can also inspect the register of trust or company service providers free of charge. For details, please visit www.tcsp.cr.gov.hk. 9.32, the news with Samantha Butler.
A microbiologist estimates there are between 40 to 60 silent coronavirus cases still in the community as the government prepares to wrap up its free mass testing scheme tonight. It's so far found 26 cases out of over 1.6 million people who got tested. Dr Siddharth Sridhar from the University of Hong Kong says it's important to maintain social distancing and mask-wearing measures to prevent asymptomatic carriers becoming virus superspreaders. Political leaders on the west coast of the United States have accused President Trump of being in denial about climate change as three states battle wildfires of an unprecedented scale. Governor Jay Inslee of Washington State described the situation there as apocalyptic and said it was maddening to have a president who denied the wildfires were climate fires. President Trump has blamed the crisis on poor forest management. And the World Health Organization has recorded a record one-day increase in the number of new coronavirus virus infections, with just over 300,000 cases reported in 24 hours. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. 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 How are you? Not too bad at all. Good morning. Hello. You never Facebook chat with me, Phil. Good morning. He's got the Tom and Jerry type virus. It's a great experience if you just want to get a bit of zing. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Yep, and welcome to Monday. Hello, hope you had a great weekend. Morning Brew, back at you with me, Phil Whelan. Until one o'clock, well, we're going to kick off, as always, with our rugby report with Robbie McRobbie at 10.10. World and local stuff. After 10.30, it's Tracy Kwan time. Going to catch up with our friend, best-selling author and correspondent... After 11.30 today, I'm going to have a chat with a guy who's very well known in the literary world, but he also has a very different passion. Sort of one of those 2020 things where you get to really check out the passion. Anyway, author, editor and entrepreneur Peter Gordon spends much of his time these days researching, writing, creating and indeed directing operas. He's also quite the Italian opera history buff as well, so just how he does it, what he's got coming up, that's what we'll talk about at 12.40. An early bath, an early morning trip to Switzerland with our man in Lucerne, Neil Runciman. That is the long and short of it today. Monet, left foot. 